0: There were two more murders fifteen miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird morning. Small things, things that are hard to notice, can lead to a great disaster. On April 5th, 1970, two men decided to square off with the California Highway Patrol in a massacre that, in the end would see a number of changes in the way the entity was run. So if you like your coffee hot, but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. At around 11.55pm on April 5, 1970, California Highway Patrol officers Walt Frago and Roger Gore were conducting the traffic stop of Bobby Davis and Jack Twinning in conjunction with an incident that was reported to the CHP just moments earlier. Obeying the officers' orders, Bobby Davis got out of the driver's seat and walked to the front of the vehicle, where Officer Gore began searching his person while Officer Frago walked over to the other side of the car where Jack Twinning sat. At the side of Walt Frago's body was a shotgun sitting at Port Arms, with the stock against his hip and the barrel pointed in the air. Standard practice for officers at the time. As Frago got closer to Jack's door, Jack exited the Pontiac, pulled out a Smith & Wesson Model 28 revolver, and opened fire on the officers who had just pulled him and his friend over. Before Officer Frago could even aim his shotgun at the now-armed Jack Twinning, he was struck with two .357 Magnum rounds and slumped to the ground dead. Roger Gore, responding quickly, pulled out his service pistol and began returning fire at Jack Twinning. But in doing so, completely lost track of Bobby Davis, who was now right next to him. Seizing the opportunity, Bobby pulled out a .38 Special Caliber Smith & Wesson Model 49 revolver from his waistband, a weapon Officer Gore would have seen had he been able to complete his search and shot a distracted Roger Gore at point-blank range. With two officers lying dead on the ground, Officers George Michael Allen and James E. Pence Jr. arrived at the scene and were immediately met with a rain of gunfire that left Bobby and Jack without any ammunition left. Realizing that they were spent, the men dove back into their car where Bobby grabbed a sawed-off, 12-gauge Western Field pump-action shotgun, and Jack grabbed a semi-automatic Colt 45, which, after just one shot, jammed and forced him to grab another. While they scrambled for new weapons, George Allen emptied his shotgun into the Pontiac, firing so fast he accidentally ejected a live round in the process, but only a single pellet from the blast struck Jack in the forehead, causing just a superficial wound. After using up all of his rounds, Officer Allen opened fire on Bobby with his Smith & Wesson revolver, but unfortunately was never able to get a shot in. Newly armed, Bobby answered the officer by firing off several rounds of buckshot and inflicting fatal injuries to George Allen. Now with three officers down, 31-year-old Gary Dean Knees, a former U.S. Marine and computer operator, happened to be en route to work when he came upon the shootout got out of his vehicle and ran to try and help Officer Allen, but realized quickly he was unable to move him. That's when he looked up and noticed Bobby Davis discard a now-empty shotgun and grab the Remington shotgun that had been dropped by Officer Frago. Without realizing the officer never got a chance to fire off any of the shots, Bobby tried to cycle the action of the shotgun, but because it had not been fired, it was locked on a live round. He fired off a shot into the air and, startled, dropped the weapon and grabbed the service pistol from Officer Frago's holster. As Gary Knees watched all of this happening on the other side of the police cruiser, Officer James Pence aimed and fired off all six rounds of his 357 Magnum at Jack Twinning, missing with each shot. Jack returned fire and hit James in both his chest and both legs, falling to the ground while trying to reload his weapon, each bullet one by one, as, at this time, the CHP had not issued any speed loaders. On the other side of the cruiser, Gary Nees picked up Officer Allen's discarded shotgun and attempted to shoot Bobby Davis, before realizing that the weapon was empty. Bobby was returning the fire using Officer Frago's pistol just as Gary grabbed Officer Allen's service revolver and got a shot at the Pontiac with fragments of the bullet lodging into Bobby's chest. Gary was now out of ammo and Bobby showed no signs that his injuries were slowing him down. Officer Pence was still trying to load up his revolver and, distracted, never once noticed Jack Twinning coming around the cruiser and standing behind him. Just as he put the sixth cartridge into his weapon, Jack raised his gun and shot James Pence Jr. in the back of his head. Gary needs to cover in a nearby ditch and watched as, with four officers now dead, a third CHP cruiser approached, carrying Sergeant Harry Ingold and his partners, Roger Palmer, Ed Holmes, and Richard Robinson. The men all opened fire and Bobby and Jack, realizing that they were now severely outnumbered, fled the scene in opposite directions. Bobby with Officer Frago's revolver and Jack with both Officer Pence's revolver and Officer Frago's shotgun. At around 3.25 p.m., Bobby Davis stumbled upon a camper parked near a dirt road and, after exchanging gunfire with the owner, Daniel James Schwartz, and pistol-whipping him, stole the camper and drove off. Daniel called the police to report the theft and, within hours, it was spotted and pulled over by deputies from the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. Finally, completely out of ammo and still nursing some injuries, Bobby Davis surrendered in the early morning hours of April 6th. Meanwhile, three miles from the original shootout, Jack Twinning broke into the home of Gren Hoag, who, after his wife and 17-year-old son were able to escape and call the police, was taken hostage by the desperate man. For the next several hours, Los Angeles County Sheriff's officers and negotiators waited outside while Jack bragged about how he had taken advantage of Walter Frago's mistake of carrying his gun at port, saying, he got careless, so I wasted him. By 9 a.m., Jack released Glenn as his hostage and... After issuing a surrender ultimatum, the officers pumped in tear gas into the house and stormed in as they heard the deafening sound of a shotgun blast. When the gas cleared, Jack Twinning lay dead from a self-inflicted wound using Officer Frago's shotgun. The shooting, when the case hit newsstands, was called the Newhall Incident, or the Newhall Massacre, and saw the deaths of Officer George Michael Allen, 24 years old, Officer Walter Carroll Frago, 23 years old, Officer Roger Davis Gore, 23 years old, and Officer James Pence Jr., 24 years old, all of which had only been officers with the CHP for less than two years, all married and with a combined total of seven children who were now left without a father. The shootout over the course of less than five minutes became the deadliest day in California law enforcement history. The men responsible for such a tragedy were 34-year-old Jack Wright Twinning and 27-year-old Bobby Augusta Davis, career criminals with long histories of violent felonies that met and became friends while behind bars. Jack himself had been in and out of eight different federal prisons since he was just 16 years old including five trips to Alcatraz, one of which saw the death of another prisoner in an act of self-defense. He had been released from federal prison in Tallahassee just 11 months before the shootings. Bobby's history was no better, and he had been released from prison just eight months before the deadly shooting and was on parole in Houston, Texas. After failing to find jobs post-release, Bobby and Jack met up again in Houston and drove to Sacramento, where they tried and failed to rob a few banks to get some extra cash. They ended up renting an apartment in Long Beach and, soon after, noticed that there was an armored car that was delivering cash to Santa Anita Park. Remembering a construction site they passed on their way to LA, planning on using some stolen explosives to rob the car, the pair loaded up the Pontiac with a number of weapons and... On the evening of April 5th, Bobby Davis dropped off Jack Twinning to go steal the explosives. At 11.20 p.m., Bobby Davis was driving northbound on Interstate 5 when he made an illegal U-turn across the highway median and almost crashed into another vehicle driven by Ivory Jack Tidwell, a serviceman and his wife. The pair got into an argument after both stopped their cars and Bobby pulled out a firearm and threatened Ivory who then told him that the CHP was in the area and that he needed to leave. Bobby drove off and the couple immediately drove to a nearby payphone to call CHP, which is why they were on the lookout for the Pontiac and why Walter Frago and Roger Gore pulled them over to begin with. In the end, with Jack Twinning already deceased, Bobby Davis was the only one who could stand trial for the massacre. He was convicted and sentenced to death for the murders, but in 1972, the sentence was commuted to life without parole after the U.S. Supreme Court ruling of Furman v. Georgia, which found that the death penalty was unconstitutional. On August 16, 2009, at the age of 66, Bobby Davis was found dead from apparent suicide inside of his prison cell. Because of the Newhall incident, a number of changes were made to the CHP, training, and its procedures. All four men had less than two years' experience and were sent out into the field with no bulletproof vests. Three of the men, had they been wearing one, would have survived. But the key mistake made by Officer Frago and Gore was how they proceeded in approaching the men and how they were searched, something that came with lack of training and lack of experience. Had they waited for backup, Bobby and Jack would have been outnumbered and may have retreated. The issue with what guns were issued to the officers was also remedied. In the end, this case was filled with a lot of small, seemingly inconsequential mistakes that, when placed in the direct path of two very dangerous men, cost four men their lives. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on April 6th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.